You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Well, welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today I'm very excited to have a Danny Klein Modisette on the program. She is a comedian and actor and author of the book, Take My Spouse, Please, about how to create shared laughter to keep your marriage happy and healthy. And I can't wait to talk about that. Uh, this, <laughs> that book was preceded by 2009's Afterbirth, Stories You Won't Read in Parents Magazine. Another exciting topic. Father of triplets here. Um, Danny also taught stand-up at UCLA for 10 years. She has also coached keynote speakers, business leaders, congressional candidates, but don't hold that against her on how to use humor more in their communication. She's also an actor currently recurring on the show Ghost for Stars. Her writing has appeared at AARP, New York Times, LA Times, Parents Magazine, and many websites. She's a graduate of Dartmouth College, very fancy school. Uh, welcome to the program, Danny klein said. How are you, Danny? Good, thank you. Thank you. That's a, that introduction is so fabulous. Like, this is your life. Yeah, you love it. You sound very impressive on paper. I do. And yes, I'll just say yes. And Mike, because, you know, I'm all about the yes and improv. So all about. Yes and. Well, there we go. All about the yes. And I'll keep that in mind. Um, so, Danny, I always like to say that this this podcast is really about the stories behind the stories. And uh, you've you've written a lot. You've performed a lot. Um, I'm curious as to where your story begins. So where does your story begin? Oh, my. Uh, I was born a small. Uh, no, I uh, let's see. I was born in New York City and uh, we moved to Connecticut in the uh, mid 70s. What, what part of and, I have to ask? What part of Connecticut? Oh, right. Because you're in Connecticut. I am. That's right. That's right. So we moved to Westport, Connecticut. Westport. OK, very good. Very fancy town. Westport is. Yes. It was less fancy than now. It's like I don't even recognize it. But yes. <laughs> Yes. Uh, so, and then what happened, I think, in terms of, like, the, the comedy epiphany, I just realized, my whole family was depressed by this move. My mother was a born and raised New Yorker, and my father was, like, starting a new business. It was very depressing. And so I created puppets, little finger clay puppets, that I used to try to make people laugh at the dinner table. So, and I was nine. So I think that my way of uh, processing pain and discomfort instinctively has been, how, how can I make people laugh? There's got to be a way I can make people laugh. Right. And that would be like, so those are the beginnings. And then, of course, I did musical theater. I was a singer. I, uh, you know, was very involved at Staples High School, Staples High School players, for those of you. Um and then I went off to college, was a theater major, like, what, uh, you know, uh, why I didn't, you know, wasn't a writing, I don't, I mean, I took some writing classes, but not nearly enough. Um, and then I came to New York after college and worked for a comedy director named Jerry Zachs, who is about to launch two Broadway plays, Silent Music Man and Mrs. Doubtfire, they're like about to, you know, come back, do the big... Broadway comeback. And he taught me a ton. I mean, I followed him around for almost two years and I learned a lot about the kind of science of comedy and how to break it down in the specifics. Um, and then I went to acting school with William Esper, also very popular, the William Esper studio in New York uh, for two years, all the while waiting tables. Thank you very much. And, uh, and the thing is, so I was waiting tables and people would say, I met all these comedians and they were like, why are you waiting tables? You should be doing stand-up. Like, you're kind of nuts. Like, why don't you use your nuttiness to uh, not wait tables? How about that? And so I took a class. I moved to LA with $500, knowing two people. And I took a class in stand-up comedy at UCLA. 
And uh, my teacher came up to me afterwards. She was, Shelly Bonus is her name. She's a genius, like really out there, quirky lady, uh, former wife of Richard Pryor. And she came up to me after class and she said, so you're a comedian. I mean, you can do, this is, you're just a comedian. So I don't know if you're going to do it for your life, but it's just who you are. And uh, what's super interesting about that is that uh, 10 years later, I went back and taught the class for, for another 10 years. And when I started teaching, I knew exactly what she meant. Like there's some people that just, it's like, that's the lens that they see the world through is a little bit off and they have a certain amount of charisma and you're like, oh, well, you're a comic. You may never do it because it's a really crazy hard life. But if you want it, it's available to you. And so, yeah, so then I did that. Well, but before before we, we go any further, tell me, before you took that class at UCLA, did, had you ever done an open mic? Had you ever been on stage? Have you ever tried it before? No. But I had, when I was in Westport, I sang in nightclubs. Yeah. I know it sounds crazy, but I really, I found like clubs. And I had a piano player, Paul Lyakano, who like I reconnected with on Facebook. Um, but and the things I looked very old when I was young, I really did. So I could go anywhere and play in clubs, and you know. So I was used to dealing with an audience in that way, like singing and banter. But no, I hadn't done. I hadn't gone to an open mic prior. Well, I just took the class. Well, walk me through the the first time you went on stage to to do comedy, right? Walk me through what what that was like. Where was it? How much material did you have prepared? What was going through your mind at the time? I'm really curious to know that. Oh my gosh, so fun. So um, we did this exercise that I now teach. So I came prepared with nothing. I just came in the room. And um, this is my favorite thing to do. And I do this like corporate now too, is you have the person come up in front of the group and the class shouts out adjectives that they get off the person. Just before they even talk. I mean, maybe I'll have people say hello, but sometimes I don't even have hello. And you just get the sense because with comedy, as you know, like you're especially stand up, like your persona, like who are you is really the spine on which you're gonna hang your jokes. And you can't divorce yourself from that. And ideally it should be authentic. Whether you're gonna play against it, like what's gonna be funny is that you're gonna be the really prim sweet girl who uses profanity or you know you're gonna be the tough like this who has a tiny dog that he loves like whatever like yeah so you're laughing because it's the contrast right but yeah. you have to know who you are so that's that's that first step so going in there was like you know that was the first thing and um i'm very comfortable on stage like i uh COVID has been very hard for me because I really like an audience and it's like, uh, my family's like, uh, enough with you with the need for an audience. Like I, uh, you know, 18 months, uh, with the same three people, I think, um, is just for, for someone who really likes to entertain. I yeah. really love to entertain. So, I mean, I will say I have had, I do have nerves still, like I will feel sick before I go out there. But once I'm actually in front of people, I'm super happy. Like, yeah. I'm just like, oh, I'm home. You know, I, I go to a lot of, well, I used to go to a lot of open mics. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, now there's, these shows are starting to come back, but you know, and showcases too. Um, and it's, it's interesting when you see somebody starting out and then you see them grow and, and sort of, you know, refine. Um, how long do you think, it takes for somebody to find out who they are because I, I don't think they know it sort of day one or even no. after year one. Like how, how long no. does it take and what's that process of discovery like? Well, it's interesting. So I used to have these panels come and speak at UCLA with like Paul Provenza and Margaret Cho and Caroline Ray, and they would all come and talk and they would be like 10 years. So 10 years, 10 years to find your voice. Um, I think because I had been a performer, I, I came out of the gate a little bit ahead, but, uh, yeah, I think you have to, it's a really, it takes a tremendous amount of patience. You can skip steps if you have writers. Like my understanding of Amy Schumer is that she had writers very early on who kind of could sense what was going to work for her yeah. and wrote toward that. But if you're discovering on your own, you really have to have patience, like five years, you know, till you, and, and also depends on 
how old you are when you start. Presumably people who are older have a better sense of who they are already. But when you're younger, you, it's so much trial and error. It's so much failing publicly. Um, and you have to get really comfortable with that process. Uh, I had been working in LA for a couple years and like California clubs. And then I went to New York and I was booked at the comic strip, the one on you know, 80th and first or something. And I went on stage and oh my goodness, they did not like me. And they were like, and I, you know, used to wear a skirt and army boots because like the late eighties. No, it wasn't late. It was, it was like the 90s. So I had the big boots on and the skirt. And it was like, nice dress. Like, get out of here. What? <laughs> you know, and I was like, literally took my stuff and walked from the stage to the sidewalk and was like, I'm never doing that again. That's insanity. And then, of course, you know, a week later, I was back. So, so and that's you, a comedian. To, tank. And then you're like, all right, well, I'm, now I'm going to go back and try again. Yeah, reflect if you could on just the importance of failing, um, and the importance of um, you know what role failing and bombing play in developing your act and your career. Oh my goodness, it's everything. But I think it's everything in life, right? Like you—that's how you learn. Unfortunately, the painful experiences are what you learn from, you know. And and no, and he, you'll hear it. I mean. I actually tend to be someone who doesn't hear the laughs. Like the biggest, the best tool for stand-up was recording every set. Mm -hmm. Because I will only remember the jokes that didn't work. And then I'm paralyzed with depression. And But if I have evidence, hey, look, that one worked. That was better than I thought. Look at that. Um, and of course, everything has to be adapted to your audience. Certain things are going to bomb in one audience. You know, I was doing uh, Alzheimer's material a couple of years ago when my mother was first diagnosed. And, you know, I went to do it at the improv on Melrose and like, seriously, they were looking at me like, what? <laughs> For those of you who don't know, the improv on Melrose is like date night and like, you know, people in 20s. And so I just said like, you know, you want to be taking notes. I know it's not funny now, but. And then I did a gig in the Valley, which is where families live and grown up people in their forties and fifties and like destroyed. Cause they were just like, thank you for telling the truth about this experience. So, you know, again, it comes down to knowing your audience and sometimes you're going to feel your way around and uh, get to know them in the moment by what doesn't work. And yeah. then you got to go, Oh, well, that's not working. Okay. They're not into that. Let me, let me use my other material. Um, but yeah, that's the only way you learn. The only way you learn in standup is failing. And then, you know, the other thing I'm curious about is like the importance of sort of the, the, the network you, you generate and, and your peers, um, sort of supporting you. So who, who are some of the people you started coming up with, um, during that, you know, when, when you were first starting out, it sounds like it was late eighties, early nineties. Well, I actually did a lot of shows with Chelsea Handler. Okay. Uh, we all performed at a place called Luna Park. Um, and my friend, uh, may he rest in peace, Sam Brown. I don't know if you remember Sam. Uh, he was a brilliantly talented guy who uh, passed away of um, pancreatic cancer. But he used to run a room at Luna Park every Tuesday night for years. And that was um, Brian Callen. I mean, uh, people that... Uh, I'm just trying to think of who, you know, Janine Garofalo. I mean, there, you know, these people would come through and, uh, but that was my core, my core group was uh, Marla Schultz, a New York comic. Um, I'm just trying to think of all of them, but that was the, that was the kind of core group. And some uh, went on to do, there was another show in LA called Pretty Funny Women run by Lisa Sunstead. We all did a lot, a lot of those shows. She still teaches. Um, let's see, Stephanie Wilder Taylor. She had a show on Nickelodeon for a while. She's a, a comedy writer as well. And I think, you know, one in terms of like building a community, I think there's this misperception that comedians are so cutthroat, they're not going to support each other. And some of that's true. But, um, one of my first gigs early on was a trip to Guam to open for a comedian. And my friend Jan Karam had gotten the job. 
and she didn't want it. She didn't want to go. It was for Miller Lite. I have the poster right here. Um, she didn't want to go, and she was like, do you want it? And I was like, Guam, of course. I had like 10 minutes of material. I was like, all right, I'll go to Guam. <laughs> so I went, and you know, I learned great lessons then that I still do to this day, which is when you land somewhere, you get the paper. Like, read about the community so that you can open with something that immediately hooks the audience, and they feel like you've taken the time to get to know them a little bit. So say they had a political crisis going on there that was ridiculous. So, you know, I made a couple of jokes right at the top about that, and then I was in. You know, you want to get your first laugh. But that was the situation that was directly someone handing me the job, a peer saying, I don't want to do this, you do it. And also comedians can take each other on the road if you're, you know, looking for an opener. I know Marla Schultz, for instance, opened for Chelsea for a, a couple of years. So people can, there is a community that helps each other. Yeah. It, 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 separate from the, the people waiting in the, in the back of the room for you to, to bomb and then make fun of you afterwards. Look, it's a competitive field. And I'll tell you, um, it's never been more apparent to me than now in this last couple of years, getting more involved with the improv comedians, because that's a different vibe. Yeah. They really practice what they preach and what they're taught, which is your whole thing is about making the other person look good. Like that's one of the principles of Viola Spolin, you know, of like the, from the roots is like, what can you do to make the other person look good? Right. I didn't really find that so much in stand up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely more of a teamwork environment. It's a team sport. If you think yes. about, if you think about improv, it is a team sport versus, uh, you know, something that's much more individual. Yes. Which I, I mean, and you also self-selecting, right? Like I, one of the things that frustrated me as an actor was that I would do scene work and somebody wouldn't know his lines. And I say his, cause it usually was a guy like they wouldn't have done their homework. They come to class unprepared. It would drive me absolutely insane. So I didn't have to worry about that. When I started doing stand up, I'm like, Oh, yay. I write it. I direct it. I style it. It's all me. I don't have to worry about anybody else. And, you know, and then, of course, the flip side is you're desperately lonely. You're in hotel rooms by yourself. Like, you're a one-man band. So it's so – it's really, really tough. But but also the the other – the beauty of it, I mean, you've got that independence. But, but I think the beauty of stand-up is getting feedback immediately on right. whatever it is you've created because people are either laughing or they're not laughing, and you right. know immediately – you know, versus, you know, when I read a book, it, it might take a year for me to hear back from anybody aside from friends, family, you know, you know, you talking about getting reviews and, and, you know, people talking about it in forums or whatever, you know, the feedback isn't immediate. Um, with stand up, it's, you know, where you don't, I mean, it's, it works or it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I did, <clears throat> excuse me, I think you mentioned I did go on and write a couple books, but the the first one was an edited anthology, so that was a whole process with other people. Uh, the second one was a full-on, like, I'm facing the wall with the index cards with the chapters and, you know, got to just plow through it, not knowing if it was going to be funny or not. And the book ended up, uh, as Mike mentioned, so it's called Take My Spouse, Please. And it basically takes the tools. I wrote an article for mm, Huffington Post and it was called like everything I need to stay married or 14 things I used. I learned as a comedian to help me stay married or some catchy listicle thing that they titled it. And it was all taken from my UCLA syllabus. So I went through my UCLA, UCLA syllabus and thought, oh, wait. Because people always say, you know, stand up. That's the hardest thing in the world. I could never do that. That's the hardest thing in the world to do. And I had been married 10 years and it was like very, very challenging. We had young kids. It was not a good time in our marriage. And I was like, oh my, really stand up is hard? Because I think maybe hmm, marriage a little harder, a little longer. Uh, and so, uh, so that's what gave me the idea to go to my UCLA syllabus and, and look at, okay, so... So what are the tools for that hardest thing that people say, the hardest thing? And let me see where there, I bet there's crossover. And, and it was really fascinating to, to find out that there was. So that's what that book was all about. And 
when I went on tour, I went on like a 14 city book tour and women would come up to me. Yeah. Make it out to my husband, to take <laughs> you know, cause they thought it was about leaving and it's not about leaving. Yeah. Well, what, tell me what, what you learned about yourself during that process. So for, for the second book where it's really all you, you know, you're working independently. Um, you know, you've, you've, you know, it's all on you. You've got to come up with the outline. You've got to put the content together. You've got to find the agent agent gets the publisher. Walk me through that, that process for you and what you learned about yourself during that period of time. Well, uh, like hindsight is very beautiful. I was fabulous the whole time. Uh, in truth, I think I was terrified a lot. Um, it helped to have the article written. And uh, because I had done the afterbirth book, uh, afterbirth stories you won't read in a parenting magazine. So I, and I had written a book proposal for that. And I was always in writing class and people would say nonfiction writers, you know, if you write a really strong uh, proposal, you've written, you know, you're on the way because then you have the map. And so I wrote a really strong proposal. And it's so funny because part of the dead, the drive was that I had two children and the younger one now was leaving for school. He was starting kindergarten. And I was like, oh my goodness, there is going to be a void that I want to fill ASAP. Like, I don't want that moment of like, now my kids are like, uh, no. So I was very driven that summer to the summer before to write this proposal. And I had the proposal and I had the article and the article had done very well. So that's how I approached an agent. And uh, they were like, okay, let's go try to sell it. And, and also, interestingly, um, I had been in, a, in a, not someone else's anthology, a parenting anthology. I'm not going to remember the name. And the editor uh, for that book was a Dartmouth College graduate. And so the women who put that book together said, you know, you should talk to our editor. You know, she went to Dartmouth. So I did reach out to her separately and said, Hey, Rochelle was her name. Um, I'm pitching a book. Would you be interested? And she was like, yeah, I'm interested. And so she ended up being my editor and she was great. And that was for a company called Shambhala Press. Mm -hmm. And they are like a, they're like a Zen yoga. So I was like their funny person, which was kind of fun. Yeah. Kind of fun. Well, so, but so yeah. The, I was going to say that. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like, you know, it's like showing up, talking, you know, seizing opportunities. She could have said the editor's from Dartmouth and I could have gone, oh, that's good for her. I wonder what class she was and like left it at that. But again, I was very, very motivated because I wanted a project that I could do while the kids were at school. And I thought this is going to be it. And the feedback had been so strong. It was such a good hook because like who doesn't want to laugh? And it's true that couples who laugh together, like my thesis, what I set out to prove is couples who laugh together, stay together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so the lessons that I, I'm taking away here um, from that are, number one, start with, with a strong idea, um, outline it, put that proposal together. And, you know, once you have that and, and something to, to back it up with, right? So you had your HuffPo piece to, to back it up with that you know, immediately shows an agent, which is not easy to find, but, or, or, I mean, you could find them, but, but getting them to pay attention to is another story. Um, you know, you had, you had all the pieces kind of, you had a, you had a solid proposition going into it and then, um, sort of not, not, not it wasn't a personal connection yet, but, but something in common with, you know, that editor who could help really make that happen for you. So like stars mm -hmm. really did align there, but, but it all starts with a solid, premise a solid idea that you've backed up somehow Mm-hmm. absolutely well that's the secret to writing i guess i don't know um well i, I think the secret to writing is writing that's what i've learned just 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 doing it every day yeah yeah you just write writers write it's so simple and uh i teach a writing class to 85 year olds now um, and they write, man, during COVID, they've had lots of opportunity to write and they do it and they show up and it's very, very satisfying for them. 
You know, just 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 thinking about that for a second. That's a group of people, and my parents are are north of that age group. Um, but that's a group of people who were just. I mean, you talk about people who were negatively impacted by by this pandemic. The fact that they could, you know, for the most part, not see or be in the same room with friends, family, loved ones, have a difficult time figuring out Zoom technology, FaceTime, all that stuff. You know, I, I, I kind of one of my big lessons from this pandemic is how do we make technology easier for people mm. who are not, you know, digitally savvy or digital natives? Um, so I'm curious as to like what you're hearing from um, your 85 plus crowd in in their writing. Like, can you think about any themes that are that you're seeing consistently come up? Well, the prompts are largely about their histories and, uh, you know, their first kiss or their first time they drove a car. So the, the idea is not to is to get them out of their their isolation by sharing stories about their lives. Now, I would say they were recently locked down again. So I actually went there. I was able to meet them. And then they went into lockdown again. And now the stories are very much about isolation and what it means to be their age and have this happen. And the, the, the time, the travel that they're not going to get to do. I mean, it's very sad, but um, what's beautiful about this group is they have a very strong community now and they feel very connected to each other and they don't feel hopeless and they attribute that to the writing, which is amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I think this is a good segue to talk about laughter on call. Um, laughter on call. <laughs> well, there it is. Um, what, what is the, what's the backstory to laughter on call? How, how did this idea come to you? Oh, okay, cool. So yeah, laughter on call is another one of those crazy ideas that I had. So um, my mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. She was living on 72nd and Riverside. She was a uh, full-on New York City businesswoman executive, worked for Brown Harris Stevens. I don't know if you're familiar. I've heard uh, of them, yes. She, and yes, it, But it sounds like she did, she did move back to Manhattan after your time, yes. your time behind the Westport Curtain. Hundred percent. She went back to. She couldn't wait. She and she finagled her own apartments and stuff. She always worked in real estate, and uh, so she was working for Brown Harris Stevens. And uh, they and then things were starting. The the wheels were trying starting to fall off there because they. She was miscalculating things, and uh, I had gone to New York. And anyway, there were signs that something was not right. So then I got a call from her friend who she shared tickets to Lincoln Center Theater with. I have to drop all these things because no one in L.A. cares, but you guys <laughs> might actually appreciate this. And uh, she shared a subscription. And the woman called me and said, your mother is arguing with waiters and she doesn't know how to fill out a deposit slip. And I was like, well, wait a minute, the waiter, that's not that that's not news. But not filling out a deposit slip, that was really out of character. That yeah. was not my mother. So I flew to New York. We got She went to the Martha Stewart Center. Again, I'm just saying this in case anybody needs support. The Martha Stewart something for women on the Upper East Side. Uh, we took her. We got her evaluated. She was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. So we got staff in, and she quickly fired everybody. Then she took in a rescue dog. That was a crazy uh, thought for someone in her condition. Anyway, cut to it. It escalates. The disease progresses to the point where she's not even leaving her apartment anymore. And I was like, this is crazy. I had a sister in Boston. We were debating Boston, L.A., Boston, L.A., L.A. one because I had kids, young kids. So she came out here. I moved her into this beautiful place that had like a big chandelier. So it looked kind of like an Upper East Side building and initially she was fine and then uh she realized she wasn't leaving and she became depressed and withdrawn and wasn't eating really and i felt super super guilty and terrible like i'd made a big mistake and i was at my dentist and because it's la you know she's also like a life coach (laughs) and i said i was like teary and she wasn't drilling and i was like oh i think maybe I don't know. I don't know what to do. I wish I wish I could hire a comedian to cheer my mother up. 
And she said, oh, why don't you do that? You should do that. So I was like, I don't know. How do you do that? And then so I put up on Facebook, looking for a comedian interested in gerontology paid gig because I wanted people to respond. And my phone rang. It was a comedian in New York, good friend of mine who was like, wait a minute. I have a friend in L.A. who wants to work with old people. She's like sitting on park benches. You should call her. So I called that woman. She came and met my mother. She sat down. She got right in her face. All the stuff that we train now, she got at eye level with her. She really took her in. And she was honest. And she had a New York accent, which helped because it was familiar. But she said, I know, you don't want to talk to me. No. You're probably thinking, who is this schmuck just talking to me and talking? So she said the word schmuck. Then my mother's eyes lit up. And she said the word schmuck. Then the comedian, of course, repeated it. And they went, they were having like a schmuck off. And it was so funny. And my mother was laughing. And I was like, okay, you're hired. Like, this is amazing. This is exactly what I want. So I hired the person for eight hours a week. She could make her own schedule, just come in eight hours a week. And it changed my mother's end of life. She opened up, she started eating, she joined the community, and it was amazing to witness. So I wrote an article about it for AARP magazine. And for writers, this is another interesting point. So I pitched the story to them and they said, great, we're going to have a reporter call you to interview you. And I was like, no, no, Mm -hmm. no. I'm writing this piece. And they were like, what do you, and I said, I have two books and I've written for major publications. Like I'm going to write the piece. So I convinced them I could write the piece. And first they said, okay, well, we're just going to put it on the internet. We'll just put it on ARP.com. And I was like, okay, whatever. It's better than nothing. Then they read the piece and they said, you know what? We love it. Make it longer. And we're going to put it and we're sending a photographer. So it, you know, again, like it's um, inspiration meeting opportunity too. Um, so that article hundreds of responses from around the world. Please bring me a comedian in Pittsburgh and London. And so I launched a business and that's kind of how that all started. And we started training. We had comedians being trained one-on-one to work one-on-one. And then we started getting requests for group. You know, can you come in and do something interactive? And that was also an idea of mine because I would go to these communities and it's like one guy playing blown in the wind while 10 people sleep. And I was like, we have to be able to do better than this. Like, yeah. what is this? So I had the idea, oh, let's do some interactive stuff where we do storytelling and we get them to participate in the story. And so that was all kind of blooming and then COVID hit. And so then it became a different challenge. Then, okay, now we can't get to them. So what are we going to do? So we started live streaming for our seniors. And uh, what happened was we would do a half hour every day, 12 to 1230, lunchtime laughter, and it was free. And what happened was people who were perfectly fine and cognitively together were showing up to laugh. And so it's all grown from there. Now we do... We've done over 200 corporate events and we're bringing teams together from around the world to, to connect through this idea of interactive virtual comedy. So I've got two follow-up questions there. And the first is why do you think it works? Like thinking about, you know, people who who have cognitive impairments, what Mm -hmm. is it about making them laugh that, that makes them, less depressed it sounds like a funny question but i'm just curious as to like why why do you think it works so well well it's 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 a myriad of things right because excuse me there's just the physical uh response from laughter on the body of releasing serotonin raising endorphins bringing more oxygen like there's just the chemical realities of the positive impact of laughter on the human body which Norman Cousins wrote about in the 70s, like, you know, it's this cliche, laughter is the best medicine, la la la, but there's actual very much science to support this. So there's that, just the, you know, the the non-pharmacological high, as I say, of the experience of laughter. But in terms of the dementia community, no, very few people are looking at them and taking them in and engaging with them. And I think that also uh, gives us a feeling that you're being seen. People just want to be seen and they want to uh, feel heard and, and listened to. And that's being heard, right? Listen to. I'm a genius. Uh, and so 
that's it's kind of twofold. I think the impact is twofold. And then, you know, the other question I had is when, when you went to sort of like streaming shows, um, how, you know, I've been very hesitant to do them um, because I need I feel like I need to be in a room with people. I need to hear the laughter. I need to hear the response. How is it? So how is getting that feedback, you know, through through like a streaming performance? Like what? You know, just I'm just curious as to your reactions to that, and 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 you know, if how well you can derive energy from from the response you get. Well, deriving energy, that's that's very very hard in a two dimensional world. I will tell you, we don't do stand up. We're not we're not doing stand up. Yeah. We are interactive. We're engaging the way you and I are engaging, and I've seen you laugh at some things that I've said, so I know that they've landed. Right. See, that's not even funny. I really mean it. I'm like, Do they laugh? you know, cause that doesn't go away. Right. Um, and so when you're in gallery view, you can actually see what's landing and also you're engaging the, everything that we do engages the people there. You know, I always say if you, there's plenty of stand up. like you, everybody's home, go watch Netflix, you know, but, but what, what we ask of people to put their cameras on, put their sound on and let's play some games. And it actually is very energizing, ultimately, because you are really feeling connected with people. Got it. Got it. But I've done, like, uh, teach, like, webinars where it's 500 people, and it's their name, you know, it's like I'm looking at a bunch of names. Very, very hard. It's hard. Very, very hard. I did, I told you I did that uh, Clubhouse event yesterday the Harvard professors and the Stanford professors, and they did like a case study on laughter on call. I don't, I was like, am I funny? Like, <laughs> uh, how do you, anybody, la anybody laughing? Is anybody laughing? Cause you don't, there's no way to know. And then that quiet, the quiet is the worst for a comedian <laughs> that like you say something completely quiet. And then it's like, and, and, you know, I was so trying so hard not to be self-deprecating in that crowd because they're all so elite. But like, I, you know, my instinct is like, anybody laughing? You know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I try to stay away from the self-deprecation, but sometimes like that's my, you know, so yeah, it's, this is hard. This two dimensional thing is hard. If you can get people to engage, then it works. Yeah. So what's what's next for laughter on call? It sounds like it's growing from you know helping uh, you know older older folks, people with dementia, to to more corporate gigs. What's uh, sure. what's, what's 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 the roadmap look like? Oh my, the roadmap. Uh, it's interesting because we're mapping out the roadmap because we're about to go out for more funding um, because ultimately we kind of want to be the gold standard of creating connection through shared laughter in all areas of life. And one of the biggest challenges for HR right now is anxiety, depression, feelings of not belonging to a company, the eroding corporate culture, because everybody's now decided they're going to work from home, which, although it hasn't affected uh, productivity negatively, it definitely erodes your feeling of connection. There's lots of people that have been hired that have never met, that we're doing a lot of introductions. And then the other perk of this type of communication is that we're able to bring teams together from around the world. So we have the engineers in India on a call with the design people in Italy, with the marketing people in Mexico City, and then the, you know, the CEO in Wisconsin, because everybody seems to have somebody in power in Wisconsin. It's genius. So we bring them all together and they get to interact with each other. And that would never happen in other circumstances. So this is really where we've put a lot of our focus right now is being able to bring all these people together to create connection. But ultimately, or I would say yes, and ultimately, uh, we want the corporate work to then underwrite the senior work. And we've also started working with people with autism. So to reach those people as well. But those two uh, segments of the population tend to not have extra money. There's so much money being spent on care that's saying, Hey, but what we do is like entertain and connect 
They're like, yeah, but we can't because we got to pay caregivers or whatever. So that's kind of the full circle of it is that we're trying to, for every 10 corporate events, then we have money to do one uh, pro bono for a senior community. But we'll still send people out. It's just right now, just too much uncertainty with the Delta and the variants and all that to, um, to do that. So... So it's, it sounds like a wicked smart business plan, though. I mean, it's wicked so, smart. It's wicked smart. It is. Wicked it's smart. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and there's been a lot uh, written currently about laughter through through COVID. What's emerged? There's Harvard Business Review, Forbes, The Atlantic. Two of the women on that call yesterday wrote a book called Humor Seriously, which is all the science behind why laughter is important in business and valuable. Um, and they call it, you know, a secret weapon, which is funny because our comedy, Laughter on Call, we are not using it as a weapon. There's no weapon. Like we're all about, uh, we always say we're laughing with company, not a laughing at company. And, you know, we use affiliative humor for any of you who actually are interested in studying this kind of, this subject matter. You know, there's sarcasm that distances and criticism and then there's like affiliative humor that makes people feel better and that's always been going back to the story of the puppets at the dinner table that has always been my a thrust if you will is to help people feel better i want people to feel better than uh after an interaction yeah that's a great way to bring it full circle because you know i, I think comedy works comedy works best for me if if i'm not making fun of somebody or if I'm in a room watching other comedians and you know, it's, it's not destructive, it's constructive. Um, you know, you sit, you go to, you go to a, like a new talent showcase or something. And you know, if there's 10 comics, eight are guys, (laughs) nine of them are talking about how crappy they are in bed. Like it's, 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 well, I mean, this is again, this is coming from you know, where I am in, in you know, Connecticut, <laughs> which is very progressive. Um, but, you know, but but then there's a lot of anger in it, too. There's a lot of anger at oneself or anger at one's spouse. And and I always try to be like, OK, well, how can I what I, what I want people to know or feel after I've attempted to entertain mm-hmm. them? is a little bit better about themselves. Right. right. It's it's I want them to feel positive. I don't want them to feel negative. Um because that's easy to do too. Um mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. why I, I sort of I, I sort of like cringe at um you know roast humor or um insult humor. And then people do it there are some people who who can do it very well. I, I it's it's not it's not real for me. Like it's not um mm-hmm. it's it's just not me. But um but but this notion of like using humor to to address fear, address unhappiness, um, like you at the dinner table with the finger puppets when when everyone in the family is, you know, upset about the move to uh, Westport. And let's face it, who wouldn't be upset about a move to Westport? But um, uh, I used to work in Westport, so I know what those people are like. I wouldn't but, um, be upset about it now though, because it's so beautiful. Oh God, it's beautiful! Are you kidding me on the on the Saugatuck River? It's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. The, the the Black Duck Cafe was one of my favorite spots, uh, uh, <laughs> and it's still slow. It's still slowly sinking into the Saugatuck River, but um, <laughs> but there's there's a way to use humor to to build people up and to cut mm-hmm. the tension of a situation without breaking somebody down, and that's what. That's where I think humor kind of works best. And I, I certainly, I'll admit to using it as a defense mechanism to avoid having real difficult conversations. But, um, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, like a, it's like a personality characteristic some of us have, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it, at its best, it should lend perspective. You know, like, this isn't going to be forever. It could be worse. We could be la, 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 la. You know, like, not, and not to minimize someone's feelings, but to, to always contribute contribute a perspective that you're not considering because you're so deep in your thing. Um, That's where I think comedy is really, really helpful and to break tension, obviously, because what that does is again, it says it's look, it's not always going to be like this. Like let's, let's just pull back the camera a little bit. Like it's okay. It's okay. So, so now for the really hard questions. 
the so really you, hard questions. The really hard questions. If you were stranded okay. on a desert island, right? Uh, uh, and you could take the work of, you know, a few comedians with you, whether it's specials or whatever. Who are you taking? Who's who's coming, you know, whose work is coming on the desert island with you? Um, okay, definitely Chris Rock. Uh, he's he's my number one. Um Maybe I would take Seinfeld just so I could analyze his joke structure because he's such a brilliant, right, you know, technician. Yeah. God, that's two men. I need a woman. Help! Uh, I I would say that I appreciate what Hannah Gatsby did. I don't know that I would call it stand-up, per se, but I appreciate um, her courage uh, to just lay bare the the truth i'm a big truth person um i'm trying to think i don't know uh let's see that might be that might be my three that i would think of in this moment but you know it could change anytime i also really still love janine garofalo even though i haven't seen her do stand-up in years she was so so smart so i would probably i'd love to hear what she's doing now sure sure um and another hard question. Oh, God. Because I have to ask the hard ones. Um, thinking about, you know, your younger self and whether this is Danny with the finger puppets or, you know, Danny getting on a stage for the first time, trying to make it in, in the business as a, as a comedian. If you could write a letter to that self, mm. what kind of advice would, would you give a younger Danny? Uh, I would say invest in a community. That was something that I moved. I was on the road for probably 15 years. I was, I would, I had an apartment in New York. I had an apartment in LA. I was always kind of bouncing. And I think, and that's probably a consistent challenge with the writing, acting, producing, direct. Like I'm always, I, I have a restless spirit. And I think it would it would have served me better to invest fully in something. Not that I regret. I mean, I I've had a really cool, interesting, creative life. Uh, but to achieve the kind of excellence that I expect of myself, I should have just slammed in on something. And I don't. Uh, again, that's not to minimize what I've done. And I believe that I do have a sense that. You know, where everything is happening the way it's supposed to happen. Every previous thing has led to the next thing. And if I hadn't written the book, I wouldn't have thought and and taken the tools of comedy out of the clubs and into humanity. I would not have had the idea to get a comedian for my mother, which would not, you know, which led to all of this other work that I really do find very rewarding. Um... But I, so maybe taking a deep breath, like right now, I should take a deep breath, like, you know, cause I'm a, and I noticed, I just brought my son to New York last weekend to, uh, and, uh, man, it's a, I, 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 I come by my restlessness authentically. Like when you go to, when you live in California and then you go to New York, like it's a different rhythm. And so I was always working against my, my kind of East coast, New York instincts of impatience. So patience would be another one. If I could just have some patience, I don't know. (laughs) That's what I would recommend. Have some patience. It's going to work out. It's going to be what it's going to be. Stop, stop wasting time blaming yourself. Like that's my, one of my favorite activities. Blaming yourself. (laughs) Yeah, like like I said, if I I do a set and I can't remember the laughs, I can only remember. Well, there was that one person in the front row that didn't think I was funny. What I mean, what up and why? And then I listened to the set and I'm like, oh, that's I actually got a lot of laughs. There was a couple that didn't work, but my brain unfortunately is wired for the mistakes. But do you think it's from a creative perspective, do you think it's better to be wired that way in the sense that, you know, you're going to be more attuned to what didn't work and how to make it better versus taking it for granted? Yeah, I mean, I do think 
there's got to be a balance. I think there's still, I mean, I remember there were certain comedians, I don't remember their names, and uh, the improv in LA, there's like the showroom and then there's a bar. And women, you'd watch this person completely bomb, like completely like couldn't buy a laugh. And then from the stage to the bar, when she walked in the bar, we'd be like, I, I had them like right here. Like it was amazing. And I would be like, huh, that's so interesting that you, that's how you spun that. Uh, I, I've never been able to do that. But so I think that there's, I think there's healthy self-reflection and analysis. And then, but I don't think all the dark darkness is necessary. Although I've never met a creative person who doesn't struggle with that. <laughs> like yeah. it seems to come with the territory to to always be thinking, how can I do this better? To be, to care that much, to say, I've got to be able to do better than this. And it does drive me even into my fifties, which like you would think I would relax already, like relax, but I haven't yeah. yet. It's also the New Yorker in you. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe it is. Maybe Could it is be. regional. So yeah. as we wrap up here, Danny, anything to promote, anything upcoming that you want uh, the Uncorking a Story listeners to know about, hear about, consider attending, or consider reading? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So August 19th, we're actually doing a free Boost Your Social Skills event. Um, and so if you go to the website, laughteroncall.com, uh, come and register, and we're going to have fun and get a little taste of what we do and also help help people because... You know, as we, we've all been isolated. So as, as we come back, people are like, oh, you know what? I kind of like my mouse, kind of want to communicate. So we're going to play some games. Um, you can also buy this fantastic book. I don't know. Is it showing up back? Oh, I can see it very clearly. Okay. So this book, super fun. Um, not a science book. It is, uh, I have to say that because I was, because of that call yesterday with all the social scientists. It's not a science book. It's kind of part memoir. And uh, part advice. And it really does work. It, it definitely helps me in my marriage for sure and uh, has helped a lot of people and it's fun. And there's great anecdotes in it as well. And then if you know anyone who's having a baby, this still holds up. Um, Afterbirth, stories you won't read in a parenting magazine. Um, and you'll know, recognize a lot of the writers in it. Um, who is that fancy guy? Andrew McCarthy. Oh, and sure. Yeah. So there's lots of fun people in here that you might recognize. Tom Shalou. Remember, you know Tom Shalou? Moon Unit Zappa. There's really fun stories and very honest and uh, spans from birth to like leaving for college, the stories. And so that's a fun gift and very inexpensive on Amazon right now. And yeah, check out Laughter on Call if you have anybody struggling with dementia, Alzheimer's, you want to get some advice, some ideas, please feel free to reach out. Uh, Danny at laughteroncall.com. That is my service to the world. I'm happy to share what I learned um, and help in any way that I can. And I think that's it. I think there that's we all go. I have to promote. All right. Well, Danny, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good luck, everyone. Keep the laughter going.